0: In in Martin Luther's Heidelberg Theses, uh, he writes in Thesis number 24, he says that without the theology of the cross, man always misuses the best things in the worst way. In in other words, without the gospel without the message that God saves sinners according to His grace and not according to anything that we do, human beings will always take good things and use them in the worst way possible. And I think for our purposes during this series, I think one of the things that we can take away from that statement is that without the gospel, we will always make idols out of the best gifts from God. I think we've perhaps seen that so far in in our first two weeks in this series. The the first week, we talked about materialism. And and if you think about material things, there's actually nothing wrong with material things or or having material possessions. We should see these things as as blessings from the very hand of God to provide for our needs. But what are we often tempted to do? We are often tempted to take those things and, and elevate them to the status of an idol, to seek after them, to look to them for our hope and salvation. Or Last week, as as Brad talked about legalism, what is legalism other than taking this good gift from God, the law that He Himself passed down that we might know His will, and what do we do? We twist it. We turn it into this this ladder that we can sort of climb up, whether it's through our obedience or our intellect or or whatever the case may be, to sort of climb up and and be like God by our achievements. We use the best things in the worst way. And and perhaps that that statement uh, is, is truest of all for what we're talking about today, which is traditionalism. How have we sort of taken those things that have been passed down to us? Those good things that the church has preserved that are intended to reflect the gospel and amplify the gospel and, and make Christ known clearly. How have we taken that and sort of elevated to them to the status of an idol? Of something that if, if we just observe this or, or, or follow This rite or this ritual, then the church will be just fine. Then my life will be okay, rather than trusting in the God who saves us. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm not trying to say this morning. Uh, I want to be clear that that my my aim here is not to sort of advocate, let's kick tradition out the window, burn the hymnals, get rid of the liturgies, Get rid of the organ. If I was going to preach that, I should have done that like two years ago before we got a new one. (laughs) It's not at all what I'm I'm trying to say. This is not me saying, you know what, I've I've been here a little while, it's time to tell people what I really think. But rather, I want us to to instead take a moment to, to sort of distinguish between those good traditions and then what happens when we worship them in traditionalism. My goal is that that we together as a church, by reflecting perhaps on those ways where where we have maybe trusted in the wrong things, we might learn to instead of using the best things in the worst way, learn to use those best things in the best way. Which is to amplify Jesus. Jesus. Just to proclaim Jesus and reflect Jesus in everything that we do in our lives together as God's people. And so maybe the best way to learn how to use the best things in the best way is to first start with the one who actually does have the ability to save us. And that's the words and the promises of Jesus. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is interacting here with the Pharisees. Verse 1 says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So here by this time in in Matthew's Gospel account, Jesus has, has sort of made a few enemies. He started to to challenge the religious leaders. He he started to challenge the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the the religious elite of his day. And he's called much of their their holiness, much of their practice and their claim to authority into question. And, And so they're looking to trap him. And so far, he's been pretty good at making a defense of of who he is and what he's saying on the basis of the Scriptures. And so now they've said, okay, let's get him on tradition. We've seen Jesus and we've seen the way he operates and and the way his disciples live. And we've noticed that they don't follow one of our traditions. They don't go through the the requisite hand-washing ritual Before they eat. Now, there's one thing worth noting about this particular accusation. If you look to the Old Testament and and you look to the Torah, particularly in Leviticus and and in Exodus, where many of these, these laws are given, in the Old Testament, there is no single law about washing your hands before you eat. God never gave that command to his people. There were some specific commands given to priests about their practices of hand washing during their temple service, but nothing about all of God's people. No law given saying you must wash your hands before you eat. Now we maybe adopt that for for different reasons, for health purposes, but in terms of of purity, they had nothing. Nothing. But you see, where this tradition arose from was sort of this exposition on these laws that had been given specifically to the priests. And the elders, perhaps they they looked at those and they said, you know what, if it's good enough for the priests, it should be good enough for the rest of us. Let's sort of elevate the standard for purity for God's people. And so we'll say, you know what, it's not just the priests who need to wash, it's everyone. So in this desire for for purity, the law was expanded. It grew. It wasn't just the words of Scriptures, but but the traditions on top of them that the people were required to follow. And so they come to Jesus and they accuse Him. You say, you don't follow the tradition. You must not care about purity and cleanliness like we do. So Jesus hears this response. He says, okay. You want to talk about tradition? Let's talk about tradition. Verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You want to talk about tradition? Let's talk about the way that your tradition gives you excuse to ignore the clear command and instruction that God has given. You see, this, this sort of practice had arose, that, that if someone had, had sort of gained a certain amount of wealth, they could dedicate a portion of it to the temple, to the temple treasury, and, and you, know, you could kind of say, hey, that's a good thing, right? Great stewardship. I didn't just give 10%, I gave 30%. But in doing so, in following this tradition of of setting aside this extra portion, they had given license to people to ignore something far more important. Caring for one's parents. Honoring father and mother, not just in word, but in action. So what Jesus identifies here is that the Pharisees, because of their strict, stringent adherence to tradition, because of their fixation that everything must be done exactly this way, what they had done is they had ignored the more important matters. I think that's a good question for us to ask, is if we're asking ourselves, what is the difference between tradition versus traditionalism? Is this question, have we observed tradition to the extent that we are more concerned with tradition than we are the clear commands of God's word? Are we more comfortable or more concerned with with preserving a certain way of doing things than being obedient to what God has called us and given us to do? You see, when we use our traditions as a means to justify ourselves or, or puff ourselves up, if they become this point of pride for us where we look at ourselves and we say, Oh man, I know divine service setting three by heart. I don't even need the hymnal when we sing that service. And there's nothing wrong with knowing liturgies by heart. But is our concern for that causing us to ignore the more important things that God has given us? Have we ignored the weightier matters? have arguments so over over whether or not we use a screen versus a bulletin versus a hymnal and if it's a hymnal which hymnal forget LSB we use TLH has that caused us to ignore the more important matters Have our obsession over liturgies and forms, and and not only liturgies and forms, but doing them and reciting them and singing them in the exact right way, has that caused us to forget to actually go and love our neighbors? Have we become so concerned with our ability to rightly recite everything in our worship, to rightly speak back the right answers, That our faith has become just sort of this incantation that we speak over and over and we use it as an excuse to ignore true heartfelt repentance. Has our love for our heritage as Lutherans caused us to love Martin Luther more than our Savior Jesus? Because if that's the case, if that's What our faith consists of. Then Jesus' harsh words to the Pharisees may also apply to us. Verse 7 You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They honor me with their lips. They say the right words. They can speak all the pieces. They can say it in the right order, but I don't know where their heart is. Their worship is vain. You see, the thing about traditionalism is it allows us to sort of maintain this outward appearance of godliness without true repentance, without true love for God and and true love for our neighbor. When we use tradition as a way of justifying ourselves, we have just created another idol, another God to worship, rather than worshiping the God that all of our traditions have always been meant to point us to. Now, I have to admit, as as harsh as Jesus is to the Pharisees here, there is something about what they've done that I can't help but sympathize with. You see, because much of what the Pharisees practiced and and the religious elites in Jesus' day practiced, it came out of looking back at Israel's past and realizing where they had gone wrong. Right, think of all the stories of, that we read in First and Second Kings and the words that we read throughout the prophets. What had Israel done? In many ways, they had sort of forgotten their tradition. They had forgotten who God had called them to be. They had abandoned the commands He had called them to follow and they had run off and they had worshipped the gods of other nations. And because of that, what came? A lot of bad stuff. Exile. Captivity, enslavement, all of this was born because Israel had completely forgotten who they were. And so what did the Pharisees do? They looked back and they saw, okay, we've seen the mistakes that we've made and we don't want to go down that road again. So we are going to cling all the more tightly to tradition. And and we're not just going to require the laws that God has given. We're going to create our own to make sure that we don't even get close to infringing upon those laws. But the traditionalism, it was born out of fear. It was born out of fear that if they messed up again all of those same bad things would happen. And I think that's often the case for us, isn't it? Fear is often the mother of traditionalism. Our traditionalism, it is born out of this fear that if we break from this, or if we change any of this, or if we do something a little bit differently, everything is going to go off the rails And we look in the world around us and and maybe we don't see the problems in our past, but we see the challenges of our future. We look around us and and we see, you know what? The world has changed and it is quickly, quickly changing. New ideas, new technology, new everything all the time. And, And maybe we are afraid of how the church is going to operate in the future. Or we're afraid that the world is increasingly less like us. And so in that fear, what do we do? We cling all the more tightly to the past. We, we cling all the more tightly to those traditions. And we tell ourselves, if we could just go back to the good old days, we'd be okay. And if we just did things like we did them when I was a kid, we'd be okay. Okay. But if that's what we're doing, we are not trusting in God to preserve His church as He's promised. We are not trusting in Jesus to rescue us as He's promised. We're not trusting in Him to defend us like He's promised. We're trusting in our traditions. We're trusting in ourselves and our ability to preserve and endure, not the God who promises we will endure. And so our fear, it causes us, to long for the past. And in longing for the past, we may end up ignoring what God has given us to do right now in the present. A man by the name of of Yaroslav Pelikan writes uh, in his book, The Vindication of Tradition. And, And it's worth noting that this book is actually entirely a defense, not a critique of tradition. He says this, he says that tradition is the living faith of the dead. While traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. When we observe tradition, what we are doing is we are allowing the past to inform us, to shape us, to encourage us. We're allowing those who have gone before us to have a voice in our midst and a seat at the table as we figure out how do we be faithful in our time like the church was faithful in its time in the past. But what traditionalism is it does is it ties us so heavily to the past, so heavily to what, was gone, what has gone before That the past isn't informing us anymore, it's enslaving us. And we're not merely giving those who have gone before a voice, we're allowing them to be tyrants over us. So we embrace our tradition, we embrace who we have been and those who have gone before, but we embrace it in such a way that it leads us to continue to move forward. To ask ourselves, what is God calling us to right now, here in the present? Who is He calling us to serve? Who has He given us to love? Where has He made a way for us to reflect the Gospel now like it was reflected in the past? Because we have a God who's not stuck in the past. He doesn't live back there. We don't have to go back to some good old days for Him to be with us. We have a God who promises He is present with us right now. In the midst of our fears, in the midst of our uncertainty about how can we be faithful in our day, we have the promise our God is with us. In fact, that is the very truth that is at the heart of our practice of worship. That's the truth that God's people have gathered around for generations. This promise that our God is and always will be with us. And so when we worship, we are not entering into just some relic of the past. But rather, when we gather in worship, we are gathering together as one people to remember that promise that our God is with us. That's why we gather each and every week. And what is the, one of the first things that we do? We confess. We recognize the wrongs that we've done, how we have wandered astray, and we confess in the promise that we are going to hear absolution. The promise that Christ's death is enough for you. That it has made a way for you. And because of that death, you have been declared perfect and righteous. And in that, God has drawn near to you. And when we confess and hear absolution, the past is brought into the present. Sins are forgiven right here, right now, because God is still with us. And we read the Scriptures because in the Scriptures we remember that faithfulness of our God in every generation. But we don't merely remember, we also believe that in that Word, our God is working, He is living and active and through that Word, His Spirit is, is creating and strengthening our faith. So we, not, we don't only hear it read, we hear it preached anew. So that we will be told and, and strengthened in our faith that our sins have been forgiven. That grace has come through Jesus Christ. That His cross and His resurrection are enough for us. And then we gather together as a people around the table of our God. And there, past and present and future becomes eerily unclear. Because what Christ did on the cross in the past is brought into the present. Where His body and His blood are offered for His people. And we believe there that in that meal we receive not just something from the past or in the present, but but something that we're going to celebrate in the future where we receive this foretaste of that feast that we're promised when He comes again. Past, present, future, it all converges together as God's people are joined in worship and in thanksgiving for the God who has redeemed us and rescued us through the perfection of His Son Jesus and the cross that he bore for us. So we don't have to live in the past. But we gather together in that constant reminder that our God is always with us. So together, because we believe that our God is always with us, we can be a people of hope people who trust that the God who is faithful in the past, who has promises for us in the future, will still be faithful right now. And in light of that truth, we continue to use those traditions to remind us of that God. To remind us that the God of the past gives us hope for the future, and so we can trust He's still working in our midst right now in the present. So we don't need to trust in our traditions. We use them. We embrace them, but we do not trust in them because we trust in the only one who can save. And that's Jesus. And we don't long for the past or the good old days. But rather, because our trust is in Jesus, the one thing that we long for is His kingdom that is coming for you and for me. Amen? Amen. Amen.